This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Today, believe it or not, is International Talk Like a Pirate Day. Well, turns out that that's a rather happy coincidence because my next guest was a finalist for the Giller Prize, a number of other awards as well, and he won the Stephen Leacock Medal for Literary Humor, and the book for which that happened? Yiddish for Pirates. Of course it is. Gary Barwin joins me now. Gary, how are you today? I'm very well. It's lovely to be here on Talk Like a Pirate Day. I was going to say we should do this whole interview talking like a pirate, but I think we'd probably chase most of the audience away in about 30 seconds. You know, when I used to, when I used to teach grade five, I would do a whole week where we would do nothing but speak like pirates, <laughs> and I would do the attendance in pirates, and if I had to discipline the kids, I, would, I wouldn't discipline them like pirates, but I would talk like a pirate to them, and they talked they talk to me, and it was, it was a panic. It was very fun. It would be fun. And, and as for the disciplining, it's probably frowned upon to have kids walk the plank out the third floor window of a public school. Not so good. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, as I said, uh, Gary is, uh, you are uh, honestly one of Hamilton's most accomplished, best writers, uh, a guy you've, uh, the, the book Yiddish for Pirates, it, it won or was nominated for, I don't know how many awards. I mean, it was a, it was a great year for you last year with this book. It really was. It was, it was such a lovely surprise and so nice that, um, I felt that the book got to a lot of readers, which is, you know, what ultimately what I most would want for a book. But also, uh, for a writer, I mean, who doesn't write like, you know, I'm in the paper every day, but for someone who's writing books, that's the struggle, I would think. That's the real challenge. Make sure it's something that people actually want to put their hands on. Um, yeah, no, it is. And to find something, you know, to, to be able to talk about the things that you think that are important and the ways that you think are important, but also find a way to communicate to, yeah, to, men, to many people. You know, you can easily end up writing some obscure <laughs> thing that totally interests you, and then not even your mom reads it all the way through. Or, as you said, you try and find, you know, to ex- address your concerns and your experience, but in a way that, yeah, that speaks to, speaks to people. And, you know, one of the things I really, I, I feel really grateful for is that um, in this book, in Yiddish for Pirates, I actually, that many people did. I had sort of old, um, old men and women who were Holocaust survivors talk to me about mm. Yiddish and about their experience. And I had, you know, I had uh, young people. And in fact, I even had um, one of my wife's clients, she's a criminal lawyer, got a bail variation so she could come. She got the judge to let her come to my um, book launch. So to me, because she liked the book. So that was so, that was so amazing. Somebody actually had to ask the judge if they could come to the reading because they wanted to so much. Well, and it's, you know, it's when I say about putting the book in, in people's hands and getting them interested, as you're talking about, I was at a bookstore on the weekend and there was an author who had a table set up and was allegedly signing books, uh, <laughs> and I felt just awful for this person because they were almost begging for us to come. I mean, they were walking around almost grabbing you by the lapel. Could you please come over and just talk to me? And I thought, that's got to be rough. And, and I'm sure you've never had that, but that's got to be a rough thing to sit there and just be feeling like, okay, anybody now, anytime now. No, I I, I have had that. I mean, I, you know what? Uh, I, in my life as a, as a poet or writing other kinds of things. And sometimes, you know, just because, um, just because you don't necessarily have, atten- you don't have attention doesn't necessarily mean that your writing isn't good. It's just sure. a whole range of reasons. And so there often are people who are amazing writers and just they have, somehow they don't, haven't connected to an audience or they write kind of very specialized stuff that has a specific audience or they're just, it's just a mismatch of where they are and, you know, and the work they're doing. And meanwhile, you could put John Grisham in there with a book of his laundry list, and you'd have a lineup around the block. So there you go. Yeah, no, exactly. And so, which which is which? What is the thing that people get when they um, 
uh, when they're reading, is it, is it, are they reading for the, because it's, they know it's already they know it's popular, or are they actually reading the the work? And so it's sometimes height is good sometimes, but on the other hand, it's also important to really you know be aware of other things that don't hit the radar. I think. Well, one of the things we're talking to Gary Barwin, who is a Hamilton author, one of the best uh, around here. One of the things that this book, I think this book, but other things as well, but uh, I, I don't think we can get away from the success of Yiddish for Pirates being a part of this, has opened the door for you to do is you were just announced as the writer in residence at McMaster for this year, which is really sounds very, very cool. And then I sat there and I went, all right, what does that mean? Because I have no <laughs> idea what that means. What is a writer in residence? So... A writer residence has two main jobs. One of the jobs is to be available to talk to um, to talk to people who write, and they could bring in their writing and give them advice. It maybe maybe they've written something, maybe they are planning to write something, maybe they're halfway through, and just give them advice and mentorship, and so as well as going to classes and talking to you know talking to students. But also the other part is to to work on a book. So I actually. Um, you know, go go there and sit and work on a, on a new book. I should say also, I'm the writer in residence at Mac, but it also, which is fantastic at the um, at the uh, public library as well. Okay, so, I, so it's both. So I, which is amazing because I, you know, at Mac there's certain kind. I mostly uh, meet with students and some professors and some people who work at McMaster, but at the public library there's the entire range of the public, which so there's a very different um, people, and so I'm really happy that I get to meet with. A whole range of different people from Hamilton. Do you so when you're sitting there? Are you literally sitting there writing the book, and your door is open so someone could come in at any point and want to just talk to you? Um, well, I set up appointments because one of the things that um, that I want I, I do is I, I they send me some of the work ahead of time so I can read it and think about it and write comments down and sort of be properly prepared so that I can so that we can have a talk about it about the work that they're doing. Well, and, and plus, I, plus, there's nothing worse than when you're in the middle of a really great string of writing and you've just got it rolling out that someone walks in and goes, Gary, I'd like to talk to you, please. It's like, please go away, <laughs> come back in a couple hours. I'm good right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, I mean, in a sense, and that way people also, I think, one of the things about if you make an appointment and you, for two weeks from now, then they, you also say, okay, then I, that'll help me finish the thing that I'm working on that I've been avoiding, you know, so that they, they people can uh, finish the work to, to bring it into me and it can help give an incentive because sometimes you're writing, you're by yourself, you don't really have people to share it with. So this is, this gives a, you know, an incentive for people to, to um, have somebody to show it to. Writing, especially with the, with what you do, because I say you've done poetry, you do fiction. I mean, it's a, a fiction tied in with nonfiction themes, but mm-hmm. it's such a personal and such a creative thing. I want, is it easy to teach that? Is it, I mean, because it's it's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to teach you the nuts and bolts of how to write a, uh, a a grant application if someone wants to teach that, where it's very straightforward and it's and there's a template for it almost. But to do something very creative, how do you actually teach that? Well, I think there's two things. One is, I mean, there's a technical thing. So if someone has an idea, they have you know they have certain things that they want to do. I can sort of help with the, some of the well, some of the technical nuts and bolts. I mean, I guess. I can imagine, you know, if someone's going on a date, you can't, you can't uh, make the magic happen between people on a date, but you can tell people, tell, you can help people know the right things to say to each other to, for it to go well. That's a good you know, analogy, so, yeah. You know what I mean? And then so whether, whether there's a spark, that's, you know, that's a different story, but you can at least sort of increase the odds of, of the people communicating with each other so that they can find out. Um, so, so, I mean, I guess that's the technical part. The, the idea part, I guess, for me, it's, Part of what it really is is about helping people sort of really find the ideas that are um, 
most important to them, the, their ideas, not the ideas of things that they think they should do or that they think that writing is about, but the ideas that are the most the most resonant to them, the most authentic to them. And, you know, and that to me, then, then it's going to live like a person lives. How do um, you do that, though? How, how do you person? how does Gary Barwin do that? Because I've never written a book. And part of the reason I've never written a book, besides the fact that I have no time to write a book, is mm-hmm. that I've always thought I've never come up with the idea that would lead to that. I can't, I don't understand where the idea comes from, especially again with fiction. Where do you come up with your ideas? Well, what I, what I would say was, um, I mean, I have some kind of idea, but I don't know everything. And some people think they have to know everything before they start. And you, you know, you don't, you, you, you know, when you build, when you start building a house, you probably want to, know, you know, know all, of, get all the parts there. You don't want to just think, hmm, and I think I'll put this room on the end and after you've already built, you know, I'll put a basement in after you've already built two floors. But with a book, you can do that. So it's, you know, you can uh, f- jump into the process and, and follow the pro- follow the process. I always say the writing knows more than you do. So that you, if you listen to what you're writing and seeing what's involving in front of you, it often suggests things to you and you often know more than you think you do and ideas come to you even if you weren't kind of planning you weren't thinking ahead of them. They just sort of come to you. Um, and there's different ways of thinking about, okay, so uh, different sort of brainstorming strategies, I guess, um, and different ways of researching to help you with ideas. But mostly, I think people think that they have to know the book ahead of time. The way the stories of Mozart, where he would just sit down and he knew what a symphony and he would just start writing it out because he just had it in his head. Hmm. It came to him when he was playing billiards. But for most mortals, it doesn't happen that way. It's just about you jump in and you sort of figure it out as you're going. So like, did you know? Like <laughs> well, yeah, like life, yeah, exactly. Did, <laughs> you, did you know in your book, uh, this last one, for example, in, in Yiddish yeah. for Pirates, did you know where that book was going when you started or did it become something far different from what you expected? It, yeah, it was very different. The one thing I knew, I knew, I knew they were pi- going to be pirates and I knew that pirates meant treasure, although I didn't know what that treasure meant. And I had the idea that they would... They were they were searching for something, and then I figured out at some point that it was going to be the Fountain of Youth because pirate books often do that. But I didn't know what that meant. So as they went through it, I just sort of figured out what happened. And then halfway through my book, I have this I have this hot uh, uh, Yiddish parrot sex scene in it, and one of the parrots comes out. <laughs> of course you do, <laughs> right? Cause Every know. book has one of those. <laughs> And I, and I remember it sounds like one of these writing cliches, but I'm writing the scene and it's like, oh my God, my parrot's gay. My, my parrot is a narrator. Uh, so like my narrator, who is a parrot, is, is gay. I had no idea. And it just, it seemed like the perfect thing. And once I look back, of course it was set up and it was important to the character development, but I had honestly had no idea that that would happen. It just happened as I was writing it. And then it, it just was right. I remember talking on this show to a number of years ago, he's passed now, but to W.P. Kinsella, who uh, mm. obviously uh, wrote the book that became Field of Dreams. And mm-hmm. anyone who's seen that movie or read the book remembers the character of Moonlight Graham, who was the doctor, who was the young guy they picked up and he became an old man. Anyway, you know. Um, yeah. When he told me he was about writing that book, that character, when he was about to submit the transcript, was not in, or the manuscript was not in the book. His wife gave him a baseball almanac, and he was reading it one day somewhere, and he saw the name Archibald Moonlight Graham, and said, that guy's got to be in, and they rewrote the whole thing. So imagine Field of Dreams without that part of it going through. So I understand what you're saying about sort of making it up that things change on the fly. Um, but it seems very, Gary, it seems very difficult though. Again, if you're going to be teaching people or Mm -hmm. advising them in writing, 
you know, if you're a math instructor, there is a logic and a way you can get from point A to point B. It seems very difficult to me to be able to impart that on people when you're talking creative to creative. Well, I mean, I think it's, number one, that they have to trust themselves and trust their own process, you know, and rather than thinking they're supposed to feel a certain way or be a certain way, that trust that they that it can, it's in them. To, uh, also to have them be open to possibilities and surprises like that WP Kinsella idea that maybe they're just, they're, they're you know, um, goofing off from writing and they go on Facebook and they see a little article and maybe that's exactly the thing that they need to add in just to be open to chance or to possibility or, to, or that their story will suddenly change rather than thinking, oh no, I'm, I'm you know, not sticking to it. So, so I think that kind of confidence in their own intuition is important. And plus also kind of pointing out some of the ways that books work that they may already know, but they haven't really thought about how stories work, how, how characters work, things that the people know about, but maybe don't haven't noticed how it appears in their, in writing or in their writing. So I can sort of help them kind of by close reading their work. We can notice things about what's in their work and ways of changing it or, or adding to it to make it more effective and to speak, you know, to speak uh, more to what they're trying to do. Let me ask you a question that I, hmm, uh, this one is going to be tough for you to answer. I understand that, uh, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because, well, why not? You're here. Um, <laughs> do you think that most people, we all write in our life, whether it's just sticky notes and we put our grocery list, whatever it is, we all write to one degree or another. Right. Do you think that most people believe deep down in their heart of hearts that they are a pretty good writer? Or do you think most people are really self-conscious and believe that they are really a terrible, terrible writer? Where does the population tip? Hmm. I would say people are able to feel both at once. And I would, I would say many writers do. One time they think they're the greatest thing and one time they think they're the worst thing and it goes back and forth. Part of writing, like doing a lot of things, it's, it's all sort of a psychological game. It's like having a... Um, like an Olympic athlete, they have psychology coaches to help them through. And I think people think, oh yeah, I've got this great story and I could do this. And then, but at the same time, they also think that they're, that, they, you know, that once that it's hopeless. And so to try and, if to actually write, you have to go through the ups and downs and just keep at it and just start picking away slowly and sort of steering your story bit by bit towards the place you want it to go. Um, it's not a sudden flash of light usually. It's just this, you know, slow kind of moving, moving it forward and revising it so it gradually get heads off in the direction that you want. And just to trust, trust that, that they're not necessarily, they're not terrible. People aren't, aren't terrible and they're not, you know, they're not just this brilliant flash like we imagine Shakespeare might have been. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure Shakespeare sat there going, man, I am awesome. What am I going to write today? This is going to be great. I mean, I, who knows if he was confident? But you know yeah. what? It's also true that I find a lot of the people who are the most confident that they are great writers mm -hmm. are not. They are not. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's one of those things that you go, you know, eh, I'm not sure about this. Oh, no, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I know how to write. It's pretty good. And those who are really self-conscious and really don't think they're very good, you read it and you go, you know what? That's really, really good. Yeah, and I think it's about, you know, always being curious about what you're doing and always examining what you're doing and seeing the possibilities. So it, to, to me, it's trying to make it... Um, not about you and not about you, the writer, but about the writing. And so if you just it, 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 kind of t to think more about what you, what's unfolding and what possibilities are in that writing, which of course is your, what you see in it. But, but, you know, if you think of it as the writing rather than you, then it's not about ego. It's about the possibilities that you can do. And so that's also part of teaching is to help people see their work rather than 
you know, themselves. Well, and, and we only have a minute or so left here, but if you're going to be helping students, I guess primarily at McMaster, if they're doing this, one of the things that I think is going to come into play, and this is always a tough spot with writers, uh, how well do most people from your experience handle constructive criticism? Because writing is so personal that when you present it to someone, oftentimes it's my masterpiece. This is me. And when you say, here, there's something you need to fix in here, how well do people deal with that? I know, I know how I deal with it, and it's not always good. <laughs> yeah. I would say, for me, like, I'm, I'm pretty good, but if I ask my wife and my wife gives me constructive criticism, I always feel hurt. And then, so, <laughs> always, so we know, we know with agreement, we'll never, so, you know, I won't ask her and she won't tell me because it just never goes well. Because it's always, that, it's hard to get outside the personal. But yeah, most people are pretty good. I mean, I, you know, and I, one of the things I do is point out what's also working, you know, what they have done well and help them see that because they may not necessarily even know that the things that are, that are, that are going really well or that are really interesting, they may not be the things that they, that they think are, you know, they just may not notice it. So most people are pretty good. And certainly if they come to, you know, if they come to uh, a meet with a writer in residence, I presume they're, they're interested in, in, in having some feedback. Admittedly, some people come and they don't really want to listen. They just want to show me uh, their work and they don't really want input. And you know what? I also, as much as, um, I also see that sometimes people just want to be witnessed. People just want someone to see what, see that they're working on mm. it and kind of to value that. And I, I get that. So I can try and figure what the people want from me, what's going to be helpful to them. You may be the sympathetic voice that they're scared to show it to anyone else, but you're a writer. So, you know, you understand. Right. Absolutely. And it sort of, and, and it kind of enables them to then to keep, to keep going or just to feel good about it, which, you know, I'm, I think that's an important function, function too. And in fact, I've had, when I've been writer events other places, sometimes people come it's not even the writing. They have a story they want to tell me that they want to. They want me as a writer to, I don't know, give a benediction just to just to hear it, to wit to witness it, just to know that they have that story. And that's to me that's an important kind of literary exchange too. I mean, it's one of the functions that a writer can do is just to hear somebody's story, as you know, as somebody who's in the business of stories, I suppose. You know, we got to run. Unfortunately, I'd love to keep going on this. Uh, you say you're working on a book now. Are you able to give us any hints on what this book is about? I can't imagine there's going to be any more pirate sex going on in this one, or parrot sex, I mean, but maybe pirate <laughs> sex. I don't know. I don't know who's having sex in this one, but what, what, what would this book be about, or can you tell us? Sure. It's, so it's, it's kind of a Western, like a Western novel, but it's set in the Second World War in Eastern Europe. And there's a guy who, see, this is the parrot sex part. It's a guy whose <laughs> testicles were blown off when he was a young man, and he's on a quest to find his testicles. Are you serious? They're, frozen, they're, they're, they're in a glacier, they're frozen, and if he can get them and defrost them, then he can have a child. Are, are so, you being serious, or is this... Com- I, I, I'm really afraid that I am. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I should put this out there for people to come up with an appropriate title for this one. I bet there's a million possibilities oh, on this man. one. <laughs> You're a brave man, but yes, that would be amazing. Uh, Gary Barwin, I really appreciate the time. Thanks so much for this. And I, I, am, I am now uh, just immediately looking forward to your next release. Thanks very much. And if people are interested in, in um, speaking to me, they can just check on the library website or McMaster website under Writer's Residence and they can find out how to contact me. Excellent. Gary Barwin, one of Hamilton's best writers. Thanks for the time tonight. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm taking him at his word that that, that that is legitimately the plot of his next book, which uh, uh, that is, uh, I'm sorry, that, that is absolutely hysterical. And where he, see, this is my question. Where do you come up with an idea like that? I don't come up with ideas like that. Maybe it's because I spend too much time doing nonfiction as opposed to fiction, so I find a hard time 
<laughs> that will be a book. If you have a great title, by the way, for that, if you just heard that, and yes, you did just hear him right. You, you did just hear him correctly. If you're saying, wait, he didn't just say that. Yes, he did. If you think you've got a good double entendre title for that book, I will send it along to him if you come up with a really good, you may have a title already, but I would be happy to share your suggestion if you, uh, if you want to have one about the cowboy in the second world war in Eastern Europe, searching a glacier for his blown off nuggets. (laughs) There's a lot of, a lot of stuff there to work with. I'll leave it at that. Uh, Radley at 900chml.com if you have a brilliant, brilliant idea. I'm going to work on that one myself. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. There there are a lot of rules in the game of hockey, as you know if you've watched it, and not all of them are favorites, not all of them make a lot of sense. But there was an ESPN reporter that went around to a bunch of NHL players a few days ago and said, if you could change one thing about the game, what would you change? And a lot of them were kind of stupid. A lot of them were pretty predictable. But I got to bring on my friend, our friend, everybody's friend, Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Sir, how are you tonight? Good evening, Scott. So I'm, I'm reading this thing from ESPN as they're talking to these players and they're asking them, what would be the thing you would change about hockey if you could? And of all the people who came up with the brilliant answer. It was Jack Eichel. Buffalo Sabres' Jack Eichel came up with the answer, and I want to hear your thought on this one because I think this is the best idea I've heard in ages. You want to make hockey better. You want to open up some scoring. You want to open up the rink. You eliminate the offside rule. Period. End of story. There is no more offside. I think that would be brilliant. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and that kind of deep, insightful conversation is why we bring you on here. <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to imagine the game with with you know uh, a forward hanging out at you know center ice while his you know the four other you know teammates are scrapping hard to try and clear the zone. I, but I, if you that, did that, though, if you did that, and I thought about the same thing, but if you do that, you're essentially in your own end on a penalty kill. Because you're going to go five on four, and we know how effective a penalty kill can be. Um, and if you decide then you're going to drop one of your defensemen back to cover that guy, well, then you've opened up even more space in the other team's end. I just think it makes the rink way bigger if you don't have those offside rules. Nah, not a fan. I mean, I I, I think it's okay the way... You know, they, I, this this kind of fires me up a little bit, and this is why this question bothers me a little bit. I feel like we're in a generation right now where everyone's trying to fix every sport. I don't know. I turn on the sport. I enjoy it for what it's worth. Some games are good. Some games are bad. Some games have exciting endings. Some games have exciting beginnings. And, you know, we're trying to make, you know, there's thoughts about opening the, the, the nets, making them bigger, no curves on sticks. Like, I just, when does it end? And, and, uh, and I get what he's saying. I mean, Jack Eichel's a sniper. He's, he wants to score goals. But, you know, I don't get it. I would see. I, I just think that I'm the, not into, I, I can't see me. I'm not, I'm not going to be into a 12-10 hockey game. Every once in a while when things go crazy and that kind of stuff happens, it's darn exciting. But I don't think I would enjoy the sport as much as that if that would happen every single night. 
Well, the first thing, uh, while I love this idea, i got to be honest, and I, I'm not a big fan of changing everything either, but I love this idea. But the flip side is we do know that within about 12 minutes, NHL coaches would figure out how to stop this and turn it into another grinding game. Well, I don't know. No, this, this, this is the one they can't because they need that you would, you would, this would be total chaos on the ice. And I know that it would excite some, but you just, I mean, it's too much for the goaltenders. Uh, again, the, the rules, I'm not the rules, the rule book would definitely change because you're going to have some guy that's the ultimate goal suck that, that has no, <laughs> that has no physical ability to stand at the blue line and waits for a pass. Your best breakaway guy, just have TJ Oshie in the other team's end the whole time. <laughs> yeah. T- suddenly TJ Oshie who who if people remember in what was that the World Championships the World Cup whatever it was when he had all those penalty shots that I think uh, the World Juniors world, well the, yeah Jonathan Taves but yeah suddenly a guy like TJ Oshie is a 15 million dollar a year player because he can score on breakaways yeah, you know but I, I don't know I think I, again, is there I, is I, there a rule that you would like to? Okay, you don't want to tinker too much. Is there a rule in hockey that you would like to change? Because there's um, a couple others that I would like to change. I mean, there was that one about the goaltenders not being, you know, keeping to their little diamond behind the net because they didn't want the goaltenders turning into, um, you know, the likes of Marty Brodeur because the goaltenders have gotten so good at playing the puck, so now they keep them out of that particular area. Um, that to me is just like, I mean, hey, if a goaltender's got a great skill, if, if you know you have a goaltender that has a skill of playing the puck, well, so be it. That's an advantage to you. You drafted a goaltender that's good at that. Exactly. No, that's, that's a good point because no one has said, you know what, Connor McDavid is too fast. It's not fair. <laughs> He's too fast. Let's, he has to now skate with his skates tied together. No, I mean, no one's going to take away the strength of your game. No one ever said Eric Lindros was too big. Yeah. You I, know, I, guys I, like that. So I'm with you. I think if you've got a particular skill, you should be allowed to use it. My other one that I would really like to bring you back, which would be less than taking out the offsides, uh, which I grant you would be a gigantic change to the game. I would love to bring back what the rule was that was back in, I don't know, 40s or 50s. If you get a two-minute penalty, you serve a two-minute penalty. No matter how many goals they score, you're in the box for two minutes. See, that to me, that's one that doesn't change things too dramatically. Mm-hmm. And you probably do bring up penalties or bring up power plays and bring up goals. And I don't, I wouldn't have a problem with that at all. Well, it, it essentially turns into a five minute major. So every penalty would be a major penalty. I, and I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm okay with that because it, if you suffer a penalty, you are being truly penalized um, and puts a lot of pressure on the power play and the, and the penalty kill unit. I, I'm not, I'm not too against that one. That one, that one, I think could be could be rather entertaining, especially when a teams are dealing with deficits and a team that with a lead takes a you know takes a costly penalty. I think anything that can add to the excitement of the game in that form without changing too much of the structure of the game, uh, I'm okay for. I'm okay with it because, like I said, you see that with five minute majors, that's the way it goes. I mean, you're on a five minute power play. Uh, yeah that that would be um, that would be the, the the obvious one. I mean, again, offside is a I mean, I, I love that idea because I, what I would love to see, and I, you know, I'm glad we have OHL hockey in the city now. AHL was fine. The one thing the AHL was great for, though, when the Hamilton Bulldogs were an AHL team, is they did all the experiments that the NHL didn't really want to do. They dumped it on the AHL. And so, you know, the three-on-three overtime started in the AHL. And the shootout, the first ever shootout in professional hockey in North America, you know where that took place? That's right here. Well, Cops Coliseum. Cops Coliseum was the very first one. And I remember I was there that night, and I can't remember who the referee was, but they hadn't really 
figured out the system yet. And the guy, they were dropping the puck. Guys were going so fast in each direction, you couldn't even keep track with who was shooting. The thing was over in about 20 seconds. They figured it out afterwards. But that would be the thing. I'd love to see them try a game with no offsides just to see what would happen. Just to see what it would look like. You know, I mean, you have to be there on the three-on-three. And again, I know it gets a little gadgety and that kind of thing when they do the uh, when they drop a man, the four-on-four, even three-on-three. And when they first went to four-on-four, I mean, it was unbelievable. And I still believe, even though you're right, coaches have come up with ways to slow the pace down, get players to be a little bit more deliberate when coming out with the puck on four-on-four and three-on-three situations. But still... For the most part, it gets very, very exciting. And and again, it, it can't hockey can't be at a breakneck speed. It's not a pinball game. I mean, there's going to be times of plotting and scheming and and slowing the game down. That's just part of it. I mean, again, it may just makes us appreciate when the game does get wide open or when you know there are teams that are you know play you know some teams play better defense and some don't. All right, next topic. We got time for one more topic, and I want to bring this up because it happened here in town today. A receiver for the Hamilton Ticats has received a two-game ban. Mike Jones uh, suspended two games for violating the league's drug policy. The drug, I'm going to try this, but I'm positive I'm not going to get it out right. Uh, Dehydrochlormethyltestosterone metabolite. It's better known as oral terinabol. Do, do yourself a favor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, from now on, it's just oral. Uh, that'll be even easier. Uh, all right, here's my question. And this is the stuff that Chris Colabello got busted for, right? Yes, yes. I am of the opinion, speaking of rule changes, the first athlete, the first athlete who, after he tests positive, ever comes out and says, yep, you caught me, I did it, I'm guilty, sorry, guys, that guy gets his penalty taken away. He can play immediately, <laughs> but only for the first guy who ever does it. There's going to be a one-person amnesty for the first person who admits that he took some stuff. Because yeah. uh, every single... You and I and everyone listening could write the script for what is said after every time. I don't know how it got in my body. I've never heard of it. I was taking my, my stuff and it somehow got in there and I don't know. And, come on. Come on. <laughs> You know, and Jones is a guy that goes about six foot, uh, about 180 pounds, not one of the bigger wide receivers, you know, especially with the game sort of changing where we're seeing more and more six foot three, six foot four, 210, 25 pound receivers. So he's certainly in that smaller mold of what we used to see maybe 10 years ago. Um, but he's a guy that's based on speed. And I feel sorry for him in the sense because he's had a season as one of the Canadian receivers, too, um, that came in there highly touted, as I talked to it, has a lot of speed, but he's really struggled this year. He's had a number of drop passes. He had two costly fumbles, one against Saskatchewan last weekend, and uh, in a game earlier against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, he had a he had a, a ill-timed fumble. So he's kind of felt the pressure and to perform, and again, the pressure of 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 just, you know, wanting to be a good pro. Now, Obviously, he's gone about it the wrong way. The funny thing to me is that the Tiger Cats, obviously, you know, again, I can't, I can't hit, sit here and say for sure the Tiger Cats knew exactly what was going on. But what we were told is that Jones was informed of the positive test after the loss on Friday, and then we see, and he's a Canadian receiver, and the Tiger Cats signed Shimon Chambers, who was a standout at Laurier uh, some years ago 
uh, for in a deal with the Edmonton Eskimos on Sunday, and then all of a sudden, after months of rehab, Andy Fantus is put back on the Canadian receiver out of Western, is put on the um, practice roster list. So I guess they have this covered, <laughs> I guess is what I'm trying to get to. So they obviously must have known what was going on, and uh, it's an unfortunate situation. I mean, like I said, I've talked to the kid, and he seems like a good, quiet kid, but, I mean, he's made a mistake. Well, the other side of it then is that if Colabello says, I just took some sort of supplement and it was in there, and this guy says, I don't know how it got into my body, you know what else is next then? Even if you're not going to say, okay, I did it, you better be taking whatever you ate for the past whatever amount of time to some lab and testing it and finding which supplement it is and suing the snot out of them for putting in some sort of illegal substance that cost you your game checks and your reputation. Well, and, you're t- and you could be right on that. The thing with here is the CFL, I know they mean like, like WADA and all of these situations, they do dual tests. So uh, if you have an A sample and a B sample, and obviously before being informing the player of any situation like that, uh, both samples are tested. So clearly he's... He's guilty, I guess, in this situation, and uh, the team say they're going to stand by him. He's going to still be able to practice with the team, which some people have actually questioned. If you're if you're suspended, you should not be with the team, but the team have opted to. They say they're a family. That's what the head coach June Jones said today that we're family, and we're not going to rough him up more than he's been roughed up already by the league. But he just won't be able to play. Wait games. a second, he he he's been roughed up by the league. Well, I mean, not. I'm just, I'm saying he did it himself. He's been roughed up, and they believe in him. He's been treated. Not treated poorly, but I mean, he's had enough, uh, and the fact that he's going to be missing games will be enough punishment in, in their opinion. There may be, you know what, here's the thing. Uh, there may be places outside of Canada where, you know, these kind of drug tests and those positive tests and everything, where people are very sympathetic. After, anyone who was alive for Ben Johnson and the Dubbin Inquiry and everything followed after that, I'm sorry, I don't think there are too many Canadians that are willing to cut too much slack and offer too much naive believing of guys. And if there is somebody who really did end up with some stuff in his system that he didn't know how it got there, that's, that's a terrible situation for you now in this country because we've been burned and I don't think anyone in this country is going to be naive and allow themselves to be burned again. And if that means that somebody goes down and shouldn't be going down, that's unfortunate, but that's reality. No, you're, you're, you're totally correct, Scott. And, uh, you know, like I said, the only difference between for the you know, bring up Colabello, to me the interesting thing is Colabello is no longer with the Blue Jays organization, and he has never been back in the pros. Um, so, and and when you charted his career, he took a long road to get to where he was, um, to get to the Blue Jays, and had that miracle season, unbelievable season, I guess three years ago, um, and then he's never been heard of ever again, really, in the professionals. So. Um, whereas Jones is at the beginning of his career, young 24-year-old guy. I don't, again, maybe just uh, made, a, made, a, made a, he's obviously made a mistake. And it's his first offense, and I think we let it go in that sense of, you know what, you're going to be punished, and hopefully you've learned your lesson. We can have a discussion another day about what, now hopefully, as you say, hopefully whatever's happened, he doesn't have this happen again, but whether or not there should be the, not literally, the sporting death sentence if there is a second offense. We'll talk about that another day because I, I, I'm with you. I am even willing to give a guy some 
leeway on a first one, but if it happens a second time, as far as I'm concerned, and we'll, again, we'll talk about this another time, as far as I'm concerned, guys should never play again in any sport, period. Period. Interesting. We will talk about that. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. You can catch him tonight on CHCH. Exactly. 11 o'clock tonight. You'll catch him there. Bubba, thanks for doing this this All evening. All right. Always a pleasure, Scott. Uh, that's a discussion we can have. I, I'm, I will I'll give a guy a little bit of wiggle room, a little benefit of the doubt on a first one, but anybody, any sport, I'm not talking about this guy, I'm talking about any sport, track and field, whatever. You get busted a second time for some sort of steroid, you should never play again, period. And that, why, why should we continue to give multiple, multiple, multiple chances for, for this? You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I found this to be... You know, we've talked on this show a number of times over the months, over the years, about stuff that is done in the education system under the guise of being progressive and bettering kids and all this kind of stuff. And you know what? Some of it is really creative. Some of it is really good. Some of it is really forward thinking. And you follow the logic behind it and you go, you know what? Yeah, that could be way out there, but there's also some stuff that is done that you look at and you go, yeah, that's way out there, but I don't know that that's way out there in a good way. Let me tell you about this story. What is happening right now to a hundred, is it a hundred, a hundred schools across the United States, but many of them shockingly in the Bay area down in the most liberal progressive part of California, where no idea has ever been too goofy to try. I mean, you know, there are crazy right-wingers and there are crazy left-wingers. There's no doubt about it. We, we know that craziness can exist on both sides of the spectrum. But here is the idea now, and it ties into some things that it's not all that far, frankly, off from some things we've heard before. But I read this and I went, are you kidding me? Is this really what we're going to do to torment our poor kids now? I'm going to give you a three-word name. You tell me if you think you have any idea what this means. I'm going to go to Ben. I'm going to ask Ben, but if you're listening, you try and tell me what this means. They are going to bring in the Mastery Transcript Consortium. What do you think that means as far as schoolwork, as far as education? What what would that tie into? I'm going to guess that this is some sort of job placement style thing for the Uh, end of the year. You would think, but this is mostly for young students. So no, it's not job placement. The Mastery Transcript Consortium is the new plan for grading students. Letter grades, A, B, C, D, F, whatever. Uh, No, we don't like that because all it does, kids just want to get marks. They don't really learn anything. They don't want to, all they want to do is get marks and grades, percentage grades, or, or, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, grade point averages. We don't really do grade point averages that much up here, but you know, 85, what's really 85. All they do is they're just trying to learn for the marks. What the, what the, uh, mastery transcript consortium is going to do is it's a, it's a whole new school of thought when it comes to grading again. Again, we have to have another one of these. A whole new school of thought. I feel like Doug Henning when I talk about this, the old magician. It's magic. It's a whole new school of thought for grading. We're going to do away with the concept of letter grades. We're going to do away with the concept of percentage grades. We're going to do away with the concept of grade point average. It's about, it's about, well, it's about a teaching model that will evaluate the student better in how well he or she has mastered a concept 
And rather than receiving a letter grade, students will now be given a long-form review from their teacher about their level of excellence. A pie chart will illustrate what skills the student has mastered, and below it are descriptions of their earned credits tailored to that individual, to that individual. This, according to the administrators down here, is the future of education for everybody. This will not cause students to stop thriving, one of them said. If anything, it will make efforts feel more worthwhile and the assessments more authentic. More authentic. Until they have to apply to a university and there's some long, rambling, mumble-jumble teacher poetry assessment form that no one has any idea what it means relative to anybody else, but their self-esteem is high because they've got lots of gold stars and lots of fancy, happy words. But when you apply to Harvard to get into medical school and they say, I'm sorry, what? I'm not exactly sure how this helps, but this is yet another example of not all. I don't want to say it's all. It's not all. It is not all academics in the education world. There are a lot of people who work in the education world who are sensible, logical, rational, good, intelligent, thoughtful people who understand, you know what, there are things we can tweak for sure, but I'm not sure that completely blowing up everything that's been done for the last 100 years, 150 years, 200 years, whatever it is, how long has our education system been around for, is really going to enhance us. If I'm a parent, and I've got kids, if I'm a parent and some kid brought home this long rambling narrative about his excellence in poetic arts, I don't even know what courses they offer anymore, in in the, the whatever. I don't want to know how many adjectives a teacher can string together in some long thing. I want to know what the grade was. Did he do well? Did he pass? Did he get a mark that was going to make him a good student? Is this going to get him into university? How in the world, when you uh, drop all that stuff, do we know any of this? How do you know if the kid is a good student or not a good student? And I got to tell you, Oh, by the way, they're saying this is because the grading system is broken. You want to know why the grading system is broken? Because too many kids have not been taught well enough, so they can't get a good mark. And then the teachers are getting pooped on because the kids are not getting the marks they're supposed to. And the school boards are saying, you got to give them higher marks. And then they get pushed through to the next grade and they can't do the basic stuff. And eventually they run into troubles because they haven't learned what they're supposed to learn. And the government and the school boards are now really upset. And so they say, well... That must be the grading system. No, it's not the grading system. It's not the grading system at all. It's what you're teaching them and how you're teaching these kids. Teach them properly, and then you can have A versus F or 0 to 100 or whatever else. I get so frustrated when I read this stuff from these people who presumably really believe that they are doing something groundbreaking and earth-shattering and moving the dial into something new and wonderful where all of our students are going to live happily with high self-esteem. If, I'm, if my voice started to sound like Barney, that's because kind of how I was feeling. We're, we're, we're wanting to sing, I love you, you love me. It's, it's, no, this is school. You have to go to school, learn stuff, determine whether you've learned stuff, and then be able to take that stuff if you've learned it and go on into other facets of life. Not the Mastery Transcript Consortium. 
What's what's the first time a parent walks in on parent, assuming they still will have parent teacher days, maybe they'll just have like a large bonfire and you'll hold hands and walk around it in some sort of circle of healing. I don't know. But if there's parent teacher day and you say, how did my kid do? I really don't understand what this says. And they say, well, he excelled at the more primitive but exciting and adventurous forms of geography. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. Tell me what his grade is. I'm so confused by why it is that we keep feeling, and and it's not just in the Bay Area down in San Francisco and that. We, We have it up here as well. We try to do stuff. Not everywhere. Again, thankfully. Why, if there's one thing that would seem to be unneeded to be fixed, not needed to be fixed in our entire school system. It would be the method by which we grade kids in a percentage form. What could be more perfect as far as being explanatory and clear than saying, if I get 75% of the answers correct, I get 75%. Huh, that is, how could that be better? How could it be better than that? How could that be more clear for everybody involved? We all know if that's good or bad or otherwise. How could, why are we worrying about that? That seems to be just about the perfect system as opposed to worrying about all the stuff that needs to be fixed, all the students that are falling behind, all the other issues. Why are we worrying about the one thing that really works? Well, because clearly there are a group of administrators who know better than all of us and have a brilliant new idea from the great depths of knowledge. doesn't say here if this was first created in one of those states where marijuana is actually already legal. I'm not sure. But, I mean, it's just, come on. Come on. We don't need to fix the grading system. We need to fix the grades We don't need to fix what percent you get. We need to fix how you get that percent. If we need to fix anything at all. And I think we probably do. Anyway, another, another brilliant, brilliant idea from our administrators. Well, not ours. Thankfully, these are not ours. Some other people can deal with this stuff first and have their kids be just completely lost. What does that mean? I don't know what it means, but it sounded good. And can you imagine, oh, we got to go, but can you imagine the first time a teacher actually puts one of these great lines or one of these lines and it's not encouraging or it's not uplifting? Oh, my self-esteem. That's what's going to happen. We're all supposed to have all self-esteem. We've got a minute left here. Robert is on the line, wants to talk about this. Robert, how are you tonight? Not too bad, buddy. What do you think about this? I think they're so off-base. It's disturbing. Of course it is. Um, We come from a large family, uh, mostly boys, but most of us were dyslexic. Uh, We've had myself, I'm a tradesperson, but I went to an engineering degree, mechanical, in my lifetime. I I got when I was like 42. Okay. Good for you. Yeah, good. My brothers were all successful and everything. And we had horrendous time with reading, writing. My highest mark would be in grade 13, where I got 75% because of a super, super, super great teacher, okay, in grade 13. I was always a great master. There was no problem with that. Okay? Yeah. Now, success is, where did I have my success? 
I was a pretty damn good athlete, and that's where my successes were. And that kept me going to school. And so if you had, and did you, do, did you take like phys ed through high school, so you got good marks in phys ed in school? All the way. I was, they were the super, super mm-hmm. marks. Uh, and, and so when you got a good mark, now you had obviously challenges, but when you got a good mark in phys ed, or when you said you got your highest mark ever, which was a 75, yeah. and you could see a number and see what you had achieved and what you had managed to get, even though there were other numbers that weren't as good and you were struggling with those, was it not more satisfying to know you had done that than to get some airy-fairy line about how... gratifying moment when my English teacher in grade 13 made me do Macbeth orally and be a part of a play. And how'd you do? I did just fine. Nervous as hell, but, but I did just fine. <laughs> Robert, I appreciate the call. So Thank you I, so much. No, go they, ahead. They, they lose track about repetitive work, homework, everything here. You know, some of us, I'm, I'm sorry to say, we're going to have to work harder than other people. Mm. Yeah, no, you know what? Life, I hate to say this because we are in a time now yeah. when fair is the word that is the buzzword for everything. Life is not always fair. And some people, you've done very well, obviously, but some people have to work extra. It's not fair. It's not nice. It's not equal. Well, we came from, I'll tell you what it was. You know what it was in our neighborhood in North End of Hamilton? You know, you know what it was to be successful in that neighborhood? What's that? Not to have a criminal record. That was a, a sign of success. Not to have a criminal record. Not to pass high school. Not to, get that, not to have a criminal record. That's how bad it was back then. And then now we, we not all of us got a high school education, not all of us went, but then some of us did. You know, I got other brothers that went and got on a degree, and other brothers did really well in trades and stuff like that. But the bottom line was was there were rules, and we accepted. You're not going to pass. You got to do something else. Robert, thank you so much for the call. Really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks a lot, buddy. Uh, it's a great story. It's a great story, and and you know we're not going to get into it with Robert. There's a whole different topic. But this also goes to my point that I've made many, many times, that we seem to want to push everybody into university now. That university is where everybody should be going. And I don't agree with that at all. I think there are people that are not cut out for university, and it's not a failure if you don't go to university. Find something you're good at. Do that. Work hard at it. But you don't, you're not a failure if you don't go to university. I mean, assuming... It's not just because you're going to sit on the couch and do nothing. If you are doing something and it's useful and it's to your strength, it doesn't have to be university. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.